HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra, your guide to Black-owned restaurants. Download the Eat Okra app on your smartphone today. There's a company called Just, for instance, that has this video where they're doing a sampling of a chicken nugget, um, and they have the chicken that it was cultured from running around the backyard where they're, you know, so they label it Ian, there's the chicken Ian, and then they label the chicken nugget Ian, and you're looking at this really, you know, bizarre context collapse. I mean, if you can make meat without having to raise and then kill an animal, yeah, um, I think... That is what we ought, you know, to do. Hey, you're listening to Fields, the podcast with Wythe Marshall and Melissa Metric. We bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities starting with the city we live in, New York. One note, we've been working on this podcast now for over a year, taping a lot of interviews with wonderful farmers and other experts. That means that some material predates COVID-19. We're still including it because these conversations are as important as ever, maybe more so. But don't worry if a guest doesn't talk about how their farm has pivoted in 2020. That just means we need to have them back on soon for an update. This week, we have a really special episode. We are talking to two friends, an academic from Fordham University, Garrett Broad, and Mir Zassenhaus, who is working with a really interesting nonprofit group called New Harvest that supports and funds research. Both of them are working on a whole new field of growing food, cellular agriculture. This is likely to take off in cities, although that is something that we'll discuss. So this is the idea of instead of growing a whole organism like a plant or an animal, you just grow the tissue you want in a kind of lab setting. So we're going to learn a little about that, um, not get too sciencey, but instead talk a lot about what it means. Why do people want to grow food this way? Um, What do people think might happen in the future? And really, um, what's the reality today? First things first, what is cellular agriculture? Let's ask our guests. So my name is Garrett Broad. I'm an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University in New York City. And I do research on food systems and food justice and animal welfare and animal rights. So a lot of Garrett's work looks at alternative proteins like plant-based meats. 
alongside this work in the plant-based uh, meat alternative world is this emerging science and industry of cellular agriculture. It goes by many names, the products. Um, so cellular agriculture is, is what folks kind of refer to as the, as the enterprise broadly, but the products are alternately called cell-based meat, cell-cultured meat, cultured meat, clean meat, lab-grown meat, um, depending, a uh, fake meat, uh, if, if you really are opposed to this stuff, that seems to be the operative term. Yeah, there's a lot going on in popular media. You would really think that this stuff was on the shelves in the Burger Kings today, uh, but it's not. It's still being researched. It's very much a object under inquiry by science. It's an epistemic thing, something people want to know more about. Uh, on its way to being made into a technical thing, something that you can just use as a tool. At this point, there are no products on the market that are um, cell-based meat products. The, the basic idea is to culture cells from living animals um, and, and using the same kind of science we've seen in tissue engineering for medical purposes, but applying that to food production. So basically, you culture the cell, in a bioreactor, it grows, and then ultimately at the end, you come out with a piece of meat, even as the animal that it was cultured from has been, you know, not harmed in any way, right? So who are the ethical scientists working on cellular agriculture and bringing this no-harm meat to life? My name is Mira Zassenhaus. I lead community engagement initiatives here at New Harvest, which is a 501c3 nonprofit research institution um, funding research in cellular agriculture. So mostly cell-based meat. We're the only research institution or organization in general dedicated only to funding research in cellular agriculture which is a problem because it's at the intersection of agricultural and medical research, but all grants in both disciplines are siloed either for medical or agricultural applications of those research initiatives. And so that's where we come in, is basically to give PhD students the extra funding they need to pursue agricultural applications of their PI's tissue engineering research. Okay, so what does that mean? What are these applications of tissue engineering? I guess, so to grow cultured meat, you need a few things. You need cells, you need um, media, which is the food for the cells, you need scaffolds, um, and you need bioreactors. So basically, you have to make a whole system of the cells, the food for the cells, and the scaffold that they grow on, and then uh, something to contain it and sort of move the system in a cycle so that the cells grow and grow and grow to the point where you can make uh, meat as a product and actually sell it. So not just a tiny amount of cells for research, but hamburgers. Each of these steps presents a challenge, and researchers, like those working with New Harvest, are coming up with some pretty creative ways to overcome them. What's difficult about cell-based meat as opposed to other cell ag produced products, the first of which could arguably be considered insulin, is that you're making like texturally sophisticated tissue. And so that's really difficult. But the vision, at least for New Harvest, is not merely to be imitating existing meat products, but to use this technology, much like fermentation with milk, to produce foods that we never could have imagined before. So like there used to be milk, then fermentation, and then we have like yogurt and cheese. There are all these different colored and like different smelly cheeses and yogurt. Basically, our entire dairy aisle at the grocery store wouldn't have existed if not for applying this process of fermentation to 
milk. Um, so we imagine maybe the same thing could happen in the grocery store 10, 20 years from now, where there are all of these cool, new, different meat products made possible by this very technology. In fact, not all of the tools of cellular agriculture are necessarily even going to come from animals. So one of our research fellows, Santiago, who's at the University of Ottawa, he's working on growing meat cells on plant scaffolds. So decellularizing like celery or carrots or mushrooms and then growing meat cells on top of that. So Mira emphasizes that New Harvest is really taking this broad, futuristic approach to what cellular agriculture can do, not just replicate the hamburger, but really reinvent it or come up with something um, entirely new, something unexpected. And in a way, um, Garrett is focused on a more traditional question about whether we should be eating meat at all, and if so, where should it come from? But he gets to sort of the same conclusion. Um, and so that's the vision, right? Meat without animal slaughter. Um, and the argument that's coming from the cell-based meat folks is uh, many of them are saying, look, we would love a world in which people either ate less meat or like these plant-based products, but those products are not real enough for this public that demands meat, especially given growing global population and especially given urbanization in the U.S. and globally where folks are increasingly disconnected from animal husbandry, how do we produce meat for the 9 billion of 2050? We need to think about changing the definition of meat to be really about taste and texture and the sort of fundamental amino acids and proteins. So what they're saying is, you know, meat is not necessarily from a dead animal. Meat can be plant-based meat, meat can be cell-based meat, and that's what they hope will by, say, 2050 or so, be a significant part of our meat diet. Is that a realistic hope? The most optimistic boosters are saying, you know, by 2050, we want X plus Y to equal 100. So we want X being plant-based meat, Y being cell-based meat, whatever that combination is to equal 100 of the meat market in the United States and potentially, uh, you know, in other developed nations with significant percentages in developing nations as well. I find that to be overly, uh, a bit of an overshot, um, uh, highly unlikely that we'd reach that um, number. But even if we thought, you know, let's say 10% of American meat consumption went to being cell-based, that is a humongous number that would have major implications for food and agriculture and business and animals, uh, which is what, you know, is the motivation for a lot of folks here to begin with. Folks, including Garrett. Would you try the meat? So I'm not, yes no. <laughs> I'm not super interested in it personally. And part of me, there's a curiosity that I, I, I would not be, a, I would not be as opposed to eating this meat as I am opposed to eating, you know, factory farm meat. The folks working with these companies, I'm vegan. I don't eat meat. What they tell me is, please don't eat this stuff because we don't want it to be associated with people like you, vegan academics, <laughs> right? Like, this is not who we want to be Ouch. as the imagined consumer. Um, and also, it's still more efficient to eat a plant-based diet. You could say, in a way, that a lot of people are betting on the state of agriculture today being bad. Essentially, whether you are more concerned about animal rights or pollution... Things like cellular agriculture may be appealing because they present alternatives. They present new options. 
I think it's also a mistake to only focus on climate and greenhouse gas emissions as uh, an environmental risk that comes out of animal food production. I mean, we're talking about really major source of water pollution, air pollution, environmental injustice. Um, you know, ask the folks in, in rural, low-income North Carolina how they feel about living, you know, next door to Stonyfield pig farms, right? And so there were chicken farms up uh, the, the, the Central Valley, right? And this is something that urban consumers are often extremely disconnected from, this kind of more acute environmental pollution. So a lot of the talk, again, is about greenhouse gases, but I think there are other environmental arguments to be made as well. I definitely think there are loads of problems environmentally, but I mean, most gut-wrenchingly just like, it really is shitty to, sorry, um, raise and then kill an animal. It's really cruel to do it in like a very torturous way, which is what currently happens. But even if it's not an excruciating like life and death, I still think that there's, I mean, a problem or something to investigate with like the human, non-human relationship in that sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that animal rights motivates a a lot of the founders and also a lot of the money coming in to support those founders. Bruce at GFI is a really good way of saying it when he's like, this is the first time we're making meat that people like are not eating despite of how it's made, but because of how it's made. So that's how I got interested in it. I'm no longer interested in it solely or maybe even majority wise from an animal rights perspective. I'm also no longer vegan. This is all an aside. But you're still vegetarian. Um, yeah. Well, because I've never had meat, and that's. Well, what about so? If these companies, let's say in a year, just has an event, and you guys are there, and they have some sliders. I'd totally eat it. I okay. mean, interesting. I probably wouldn't like it, and I have no like desire really ever to try Beyond Meat or like Impossible. Only because I've never had meat. I didn't even grow up with any like smoky flavors. It's just not appealing to me. It's like a palate thing. Yeah. Yeah. So now you know sort of the basics, what's going on with the field of cellular agriculture. Next, we're going to hear about some of the controversies around even what to call these products. And we're going to think about what the industry might look like in the near term. And sort of why are people so excited? It comes down to a bunch of different reasons that are really interesting and that sort of overlap with and are sort of different from other aspects of urban agriculture and technology in agriculture. I think that generally there's been an evolution in a positive sense towards people's reaction because it used to be called like frankenmeat and in vitro meat pretty regularly um, in the media and now it's not. called cell-based or cell-cultured or even clean, which is maybe a little bit like overcompensating in a propagandic way. But, you know, cell-based is pretty neutral and descriptive. Do you think it should even be called meat? Yeah, I mean, I think it should be called meat. I think the purpose of names at its core is to like, you know, identify like so that there's a name and there's a sense to it and there's yeah. a reference to it yeah. and the meat yeah. is the reference and then there's whatever thing yeah. precedes that is, I guess, capturing the sense of it. What do other people think? I think most people are willing to try it. I know that there are like consumer survey research and like mechanical Turk surveys about people's reception to this technology and names. Um, I personally don't hold much stock in that kind of realm of research or really care because I think this is so like novel. 
I really think that's restricting both on the like production end yeah. and the reception end, just everyone's kind of ideas and the potential of the technology. Like maybe the technology is such that like when it makes the meat, it's polka dotted with purple for some reason, like unique to this like bioreactor used to make the meat. And then it would make most sense to call it like purple dotted meat or something. But I really think that we should just not be concerned with like marketing the product before it really exists. I think, I forget who it was. I think it was Tamar Haspel, who's this like writer and shellfish farmer. As a joke, she tweeted like that it could be called immaculate meat, which I think is hilarious. And I genuinely think a company should call it because it's it's really funny. It's taking the whole like clean meat thing to the yeah. extreme. Yeah. So it's no longer so moralizing. It's riffing on impossible. Um, it's hilarious and just like motherless meat. So many reasons. I think it's so a great true. name, but no one will take me seriously when I suggest that. I mean, I will when I launch Starbucks. <laughs> Please. I think you can tell from this conversation that there's a lot going on with cellular agriculture that isn't just about trying to fix animal agriculture broadly or make food that's better for the environment. There's something really curious and kind of funny about this whole idea of growing meat and other products uh, from animals in big stainless steel bioreactors in labs. A lot of people do envision people being able to grow meat in their own homes. Shojin Meat Project in Japan, if you're familiar, their whole thing is like citizen biohacking, teaching high schoolers how to culture cells to potentially grow meat there. So people could maybe do it in their homes. It's not exactly the same type of fermentation as we see with milk and cheese and stuff. But I guess we use that word in the imagery because like with the bioreactors, you can think of them as kind of giant fermentation tanks like those that we use to brew beer. Basic level, it's manipulating like cells and how they grow to create new things. Yeah. Here at New Harvest, I think what we focus on more um, in a way that is less discussed is kind of there's it's a really cool thing it's like science fiction it's like space um, and there's this whole whimsy to it that I think very much drives like the public's interest in these headlines drives people's individual interest in pursuing this that's so much less sober and grim than like this is how we're going to like solve climate change because I don't think this is how we solve climate change that needs to be solved a lot faster. Of course, if you're an existing giant food company, you might be asking a different question, not about climate change or just whimsy per se, but how might this whimsy actually be turned into products? Big meat companies, I mean, I think people like to paint them as these like evil behemoths that are like trying to take down this nascent industry, but that's not really the case. They're trying to kind of co-opt it for themselves invest money in it, which is cool. They have a lot of resources at their disposal. I personally would be really disappointed is if in this creation of a new way of growing food, we just replicated um, the consolidation and the like corporatization of meat that we've been dealing with for so long. Because this is, I think, a truly unique opportunity to really like start fresh from a really like protracted history of messed up things. And yeah, we can, we have the opportunity to not recreate those mistakes.
So within the existing food landscape, what larger companies would New Harvest actually want to work with? I personally think that Taco Bell is at the forefront of food innovation. They have this like cool food innovation lab. Please tell us. Well, yeah. So the history of how they made like the Dorito Loco shell, for example, like they wanted it to leave the residue in the same way that Doritos leave a residue, but while it and have it be crunchy, but a chip can be crunchy, but a shell also has to be like flexible. So that was one like big engineering challenge. And also in the like production facility, when they were originally like making that residue powder, like applying it in the same way that they do for Doritos, it was like a health hazard for the workers. And so they totally had to innovate in a like production capacity, same way in a scaling capacity in the same way as cultured meat. And Taco Bell is just always doing really cool things. And they have the most vegetarian-friendly menu, a very good user-friendly app, which I use regularly. Dear listeners, I feel I should clarify, we are not sponsored by Taco Bell. Dear Taco Bell, I feel I should clarify, we are very open to sponsorship. Okay, and what about other brands? Like the Impossible Meat yeah. um, with yeah. White Castle, Qdoba, I think has impossible ground beef. And I think that's been a really genius like strategy. And it's helpful to not think of plant-based and cell-based meat as like being opposed to one another, being like discrete separate entities, but rather to think of them as being on a continuum. I definitely imagine the first cell-based products to not be just a cell cultured like steak. That would be a ridiculous first product and like so difficult. But you know, to be supplementing a plant-based thing with like some cells cultured on there, they definitely like can, there can be a lot of synergy. And when it comes to cellular agriculture, there are a lot of synergies that have been proposed. For example. The answer is uh, to, is it kosher? Is it depends as always, as always in Judaism, it kind of depends which rabbi you ask, right? Um, and you know, uh, maybe a new chapter of the Talmud yeah. will be written uh, on this stuff specifically. But but yeah, there there is this kind of like idea of like, oh wow, like Jews and Muslims will finally be able to eat like a bacon cheeseburger, you know, like a, a bacon cheeseburger or something like that, right? That's not kosher, not halal. There's not consensus. Yeah. There is, there's a guy named Alan Levinovitz, who is a, I think it's James Madison, I want to say, who's a scholar of religion, who writes a lot, who's been writing a book about sort of Nat, ideas of natural and religion and has talked uh, and has been doing some of this, uh, I think. Here, of course, we must shout out Garrett Broad's own excellent work on cellular agriculture, as well as that of my friend Ben Wergift, who has a book you might want to check out if you're interested in cellular agriculture called Meat Planet. This episode is brought to you by Eat Okra, your guide to Black-owned restaurants. If you'd like to support local Black-owned businesses, or maybe just find a new favorite place to eat, download the Eat Okra app now. Fill your home pantry with some great Black-owned products by shopping in their new marketplace. Available on the app soon. Okay, so there is a lot going on in the present of cellular agriculture. But one big question, since it's a totally new industry in a lot of ways, what would this sort of good food future look like? Especially in the sense of local cell agni, 
or people producing their own cell acne, what does New Harvest want and envision? So can you walk us through the future that, you know, this technology's progressed, it's safe. There are some corporate products for sure, but also like there can be craft meat brewers. What does that look like? Brooklyn in 2040, I'm going to go make some meat. What do I do? <laughs> hmm. Okay. So let's say the technical obstacles and scaling and stuff are overcome by 2040. What New Harvest is in the business of doing is building the world in which cellular agriculture and cell-based meat can exist. So that means funding like the whole pipeline, funding at the university level, training the people at universities, just laying that whole groundwork so that like an industry can exist. For someone in Brooklyn to be growing meat in 2040, it might be a stretch. Maybe it's possible that like companies are selling um, cell-based meat by then, but if they, I mean, the biggest challenge right now, for example, is the serum-free media. A company might figure out how to make a media that doesn't require fetal bone, bovine serum, but everyone else is also trying to solve that same problem. So it's a lot less likely that someone from Brooklyn who's not from that company will have figured out that same very difficult answer solution by then. Whereas if one of our research fellows like came up with a really great serum-free media alternative in their lab, then anyone who wants to make cell-based meat can use that. So you can hear Mira is emphasizing a future that is predicated on open technologies, technologies that anyone can use. They're not owned by a single company. Garrett, on the other hand, is giving us the perspective of the companies. What will successful cell ag companies in the future sort of uh, think of themselves as? Brooklyn in 2050, and there's a big meat facility, mm -hmm. but there's no cows in it. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Right. One of them is by using metaphors like the brewery. Right. And so they would say, you know, so they hate this term lab grown meat. Right. They say, no, 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 this is not a lab. Right. They say everything, every food, every processed food starts in some lab. Right. Somewhere. Right. You know, they made Cheerios initially in some sort of laboratory. Right. And every product you can think of that's on the shelf, there was some, you know, food science lab you know, where it started and they started to put these different tastes and textures together and figure it out, right? And they say, yeah, that's where we are now, right? But ultimately, we're going to be in a meat brewery down the road. Um, so using terms like brewery, right? And, and if you look at a bi at the, the bioreactor, it, it is a very similar, you know, uh, kind of, you know, machinery to what we see if you've ever been to a, uh, a, a brewery, you know, where they're brewing beer and maybe have a tasting room. I think that's one vision, Um and in fact, there's a there's an, uh, a company called New Age Meats in San Francisco. They came out of this um, uh, accelerator called Indie Bio, which has been one of the big um, accelerators kind of pushing out a lot of these companies. Memphis Meats also came out of there. They're, they're one of the most high-profile cell-based meat startups. Um, but they did a, a kind of a tasting and, and, you know, public relations event where they had a journalist eat, um, you know, a piece of their, their uh, cultured uh, sausage. And where do they do it? They did it in a San Francisco brewery, right? And so the idea here being like, you're eating this, you know, little tiny bit of this cultured, you know, cell-based sausage, and you're drinking a beer, and you're sitting in a, in a brewery, and you see some of these, you know, bioreactors that are made for, for beer, right? But it, it's, so it's this way they're kind of using that to naturalize it. Garrett also gets into some issues about the vision for brewing meat at home. 
But how that actually looks in, you know, the cities of the future, a scholar named Cor Vanderweel, who's a, a, a Dutch uh, scholar of these issues, and some of her colleagues have put out this idea of like a pig and a, and a bioreactor in, in every backyard, right? And so that you could like, you know, you've got some of these folks who are doing, um, you know, backyard chickens in New York City. Well, instead of raising them for slaughter, they could be raising them and culturing them and creating meat from them with a backyard bioreactor and then eating, you know, Ian or whoever it is, the chicken, and, and you know, and, and still having Ian there in the backyard for years and years to come. I think the concern with that would be there's a lot of food safety regulations, right, that are, are likely going to be in place here, just like, you know, beer brewers uh, in the kind of craft beer, uh, you know, emergence, um, I think had to face a lot of concern about, you know, safety and regulation. This, I think, takes this to a, an even higher level. Just to jump in real quick, you cannot actually raise chickens in your backyard in New York City for slaughter, only for eggs. You may be able to do this in other cities, but let's just think of this as a hypothetical. But that that's one vision that's out there. You know, another is kind of big cell-based meat production facilities uh, at, at Just, uh, which I mentioned before, they used to be called Hampton Creek. Now they're Just. I've seen they've got this sort of photo, uh, a, a, an artist re uh, rendering of a cell-based meat uh, production facility of the future. And it's large, but also accessible. And there's kind of, you know, glass, you know, walls that are, are sort of, um, you know, making sure that it's, it's safe and there's no contamination, but you've got members of the public on the other side of that, uh, you know, glass window to be able to look in and to see the process. There's still a good amount of time before this is, is going to be, you know, uh, available for consumers at all, let alone taking up 10, 20, 50, 100 percent of the, the meat, uh, you know, market. Um, but I think that we could see this go in a, in a bunch of different directions in terms of what these facilities look like. But what about companies that are just interested in making money? Do they sort of fit into this story? Are there different competing visions of what's going to happen with cellular agriculture? People talk about how expensive cultured meat is, and yes, it is definitely expensive, but you think about how much money has gone into perfecting the meat that we get at the grocery store today, both meat science perspective, tons of government money, tons of private money, subsidies, all of that lumped together is way more than like what we've put into cell-based meat. I guess going back to misconceptions, a big one propagated largely by the like startups, and they have to say this type of thing because they are innovating in a private capacity, is that it's just a trivial engineering problem. It's like how to scale. Trivial engineering problem, how we replace the serum for the cells, which is currently fetal bovine serum, with something obviously not derived from animals. But scaling is not a trivial issue, and scaling is how you feed people. And what are other issues within the field of cellular agriculture that will have to be tackled, especially when it comes to food justice? I would certainly argue that, you know, simply producing more meat this way without other changes to our sociological structures, um, you know, to the, the broader, you know, political economy of society and, and you know, that, that we're going to run into a lot of the same problems.
And so something I've really been advocating for strongly is getting these kinds of conversations about equity and justice into this landscape where I, I think so much is focused on sort of the positive promises of these technologies, just like, you know, with GMOs, um, that there hasn't been enough of an honest conversation about what don't these technologies do? Um, how could these technologies be sort of incorporated into existing, um, you know, existing cultures in ways that's more collaborative and more participatory and makes it more likely that it'll actually have the positive impacts? I talked a little bit before about sort of how they're talking about, oh, we need transparency and glass walls and we need to make folks feel comfortable about this. But then you have the kind of economic imperatives of, all right, these are startup companies that are really leading the charge here and they're taking on a bunch of private equity and investment. Um, and, you know, there are a few nonprofit organizations and academic researchers out there that are kind of pushing for open science, but most of the big money is going into this you know, this IP, this intellectual property, you know, so it's, it's tough to say, hey, we're going to be open and transparent and we want to engage the public, but we can't tell you about really these fundamental aspects of our process at this point. If advocates of cell-based meat don't think about how to fit this into existing cultural contexts, it will fail. And if they look at anyone who's concerned or skeptical of this stuff as simply anti-science, and uh, ignorant and take this kind of classic deficit model approach to science, which says we have knowledge and information and we just need to provide you, you know, unwashed masses with, you know, better information and then all will be fixed. Um, I think that that it will it will I mean, it will certainly not reach the potential that they hope. Right. There's also a lot of opposition coming from urban foodie type consumers. Yeah. Slow food, the Michael Pollans of the world, um, this, is, this does not fit their definition necessarily of real food and of good food. Fat Garrett talked a lot about opposition, potential reasons that people will not be into cellular ag. The GMO debate, which we haven't talked about here, is part of this debate, whether folks want it to be or not, right? Um, and so GMOs, the um, technically the cell-based meat are not GMOs in the you know in the technical sense of what a genetically modified organism is, but they're using the same kinds of tools of synthetic biology um, that in the kind of public mind they are all the same kind of thing, and so you know the kind of debates and the intransigence around the GMO issue really loom large in the way folks talk about these issues. Um, and so I think we can learn some lessons about kind of what went wrong with GMOs to think about how we might engage this in, in, in a better way. To finish up, we really wanted to understand what's the role of the urban or rural community What's the role of existing infrastructure? What are the role of existing animal growers in this imagined new economy where meat is grown in labs, where milk is grown in labs? And what specifically do different places look like that might lead the way? So we wanted to imagine a little bit further, and we were mostly selfishly thinking about the US, but we ended up realizing that of course this is a global story. It gets pretty interesting. So for them, the imagined consumer is somebody who eats meat, 
um, who's maybe interested in reducing it or changing it, you know, is very likely not, you know, directly connected to animal food production or, or food production at all. Um, and so, and, and then, you know, and so that is an urban consumer primarily. Um, it's also an urban consumer primarily because we are an ur- urban you know, nation, increasingly an urban nation um, and increasingly an urban world, right? And so this is part of a process of, you know, people moving off of the land and into cities. I would say there's there's definitely an idea here that cities are going to be an important part of meat production in the future if cell-based meat is a big part of it. And that will be, um, you know, we'll be able to place, you know, these cell-based meat bioreactor breweries, as they like to kind of think of them uh, in cities, uh, and that it would potentially be a way to kind of link production and consumption of meat in a much closer uh, geographic link that's kind of been lost over the last several decades as there's been, you know, a, a a kind of move away from urban animal food production. Um, you know, back in the day, there was tons of animals being raised in cities. There were tons of animals being paraded through cities, being slaughtered in cities. Um, this was a major economic, you know, a- aspect of cities, but it was also a major public health problem. And so this could be a way to kind of bring meat production back into the cities um, and connect it to, to urban meat consumers as well. In terms of our research fellows, um... They are mostly in urban areas, but not always. One of our research fellows, Jess, was at Kent State in Ohio, which apparently doesn't even have a Bank of America. On the research research side, it's not necessarily tied to the urban space, but most of the companies and so all of the people that you hear about in the press are are in San Francisco or the Bay Area um, or like overseas, but cell-based meat in a and company level is pretty much all happening in highly urban areas. But I don't think that needs to be the case. And I think it is kind can be alienating for that to be the case. Um, I don't think that there's a lack of jobs or opportunities for people in the Bay Area. And I mean, I'm from St. Louis, um, but I feel like like one of the things I would always do as a high schooler um, in St. Louis is there's this old like abandoned meat packing facility on the corner of like St. Louis and Illinois. And it's really popular to like go and explore and take pictures um, in that meat packing plant. The point of which is to say that there's this infrastructure and I feel like all of these different Rust Belt cities to support like a real booming industry and it's just sitting there. Um, and it would be cool to be populating or repopulating these cities with this new technology that, I mean, it's kind of evokes like the industries of the past in those very cities. That would be part of my vision for cell-based meat. Relating to like the repopulating of the Rust Belt or whatever, um, people are always talking about like displacement, job displacement of the farmers, et cetera. Um, And what I think about when I imagine like cell-based meat production happening in like these giant brewery type facilities in cities is also, you know, skill like like technical schools, but technical schools for like, you know, the science pipetting, whatever, for making um, these types of products being like, you know, in addition, yeah, just another avenue in terms of like technical schools and um, employment of people in cities. There's the cool whimsy element to 
like what types of foods we can make, like a cell-based weird like Halloween candy or like growing meat on like a mushroom, um, all of those cool things, which is, you know, crazy to think about. Um, but then also the generative possibilities of this new industry, which I mean, because there are so many ways to combat, you know, climate change and the environmental like footprint and disastrous like effects of current livestock production. And yes, those are very important, but um, I think that this is maybe one of the only proposed solutions where it's so blank a slate in terms of like what this industry could look like and the possibilities. And that's also equally cool as like the cell cultured mushroom, but you know, being able to write, you know, decades and decades of wrongs and yeah. food production. A quick side note, we were actually recording in a city in downtown Brooklyn because um, that is where New Harvest is located, kind of like in a worker space slash artist space. So hence why you hear the beeping and the background noise and things like that, um, just because it's a living space. Monsanto or Bayer, I guess now is based in yeah. St. Louis. There's Mizzou, which has like huge agricultural research. All of the like physical livestock is they're in like the plains and in the Midwest. And yeah, it's alienating for all of this to just happen like in the Bay Area. Something I can imagine happening is like one of our volunteers, Ariana, just moved. She was working at Deloitte um, and there's Tulsa, like some big philanthropist from Tulsa sponsors this program where like they pay for the relocation and like huge, just a shit ton of money for like people like Ariana to work remotely since so much you know, digital nomads or whatever to be a nomad in Tulsa. Um, and so like we have Cargill and Tyson and all these, you know, companies that have huge amounts of money, like huge, unfathomable amounts of money. And so they could fund similar programs to bring like these startups or this research to, you know, these cities like St. Louis or, you know, other places. I mean, you don't need to be like the only thing in the Bay Area that like exists in like bigger quantity than exists in St. Louis is, I guess, workers. Although there are plenty of biotech workers in St. Louis because WashU has like a great med school and Monsanto. And then I get money from, and, but like, you know, you can build those things other places. Mira also talks about companies who are producing cell ag meat internationally, especially India, because that is where her family is from. Well, in India, there's this, there's one cultured meat company called um, Clear Meats that is doing like ground minced chicken. But well, India is really interesting because um, if you see like the social media article, like responses to articles or even like media articles, what they're calling it, a lot of times they say ahimsa meat, which is like there's this long standing nomenclature debate like in the Western world about what to call it. And this is adding like an entirely new religious and like similarly to clean moralizing element, but in a very like India specific way, which I think is interesting also because India is always referenced as the reason why like all of these Western like 
Bay Area startups are making this technology is because there are all of these like soon to be middle class meat eaters in India and we need to feed them. And I mean, I think what people ignore is that India has like one of the largest cattle populations in the world is one of the biggest exporters of beef is not a mostly vegetarian nation, contrary to what Modi says or like tries to make it. The same government that is funding this research in India is the same government that allows like the cow vigilante violence to go completely unchecked in the country and is like spouting all of this pseudoscience about how we should like be literally praying at temples on like government money to like solve the drought in Tamil Nadu, like ridiculous stuff because it's a ridiculous fascist government. But um, point being ahimsa meat, yes. Um, adding really this like whole, and I just need to think about it for like so much longer, but element to the naming debate, which is, I mean, like such a big thing. Um, and it means, I guess, like translationally, like nonviolence, but it's imbued with so much like Hindu nationalism and like violence and moralizing in a way that is used as a vehicle through which like Hindu nationalism can spread. And not saying that like there's a direct parallel or analogy to clean meat. I mean, like you just can't compare these two, but there is a similar like moralizing energy to the two. And maybe India takes it to an extreme in a way that like can put clean into relief. The Mary Douglas thing, I mean, clean yeah, is all about purity. purity and so it's linked yeah. in the West, the, the, the term clean is linked to eugenics and ra racial yeah. science and, yeah. and state violence. Yeah. Um, hmm. Whereas Ahimsa, wow. yeah, is linked back to like, as I understand it, to like um, Gandhi and, and independence, right? But also now to this era of kind of Trumpian, um, you know, Modi's attempt to yeah. kind of brand everything as. And as literally force feeding like. The cattle industry and the beef industry is mostly non-Hindus or like lower caste Hindus or Muslims. And there's just all of these videos online and TikTok that are just so horrifying of people like literally like killing and beating up like Muslim pork producers or beef producers to death or like force feeding them pork. You we have this whole concept of like greenwashing and within India itself, like it's pretty well known that like eating meat is almost like a political act of subversion. But like in the Western world, it's like, oh, wow, India, vegetarianism, that's cool because here it has this health halo, this environmental halo. And so in terms of like an exporting of like India's image, I feel like there's kind of this whole like greenwashing element to this whole like really nefarious vegetarianism, which is something that I mean, I think about a lot. Well, my mom's from India, that's why I have never had meat. Lab-grown meat is not actually being pitched towards vegetarians or vegans. They are pitching it more towards meat eaters who may just want to eat less meat and who still really like eating meat. Whereas, for example, Mira, who grew up a vegetarian, she was also like, I probably wouldn't eat this because I've never eaten meat. Yeah, I think the customer question, and, and this isn't veganism, but something new, broader consumer acceptance. It's definitely, and that's held strong, like even with COVID, like COVID's reversed a lot of stuff, but it hasn't, it does seem like people still want to eat more plant-based food, so. What Mira was talking about with the issue in India, how it is like vegetarianism is actually a way to suppress other religions or cultures within India. 
yeah, I think the idea of using like diet as um, an instrument to create nationalism is definitely not well, something new, but, but like obviously a really big deal in India where there's, yeah, that extreme split between, um, you know, Hindu and Muslim, like ways mm-hmm. of being and politics. Yeah. Well, it is interesting food as a form of nationalism or agriculture as a form of nationalism and the whole, like kind of going into this time period. Now the uh, resurgence of victory gardens and, you know, how agriculture was used as, or food was used as a weapon to fight the war and all these other things. So how in the past agriculture and food has been used for these um, political platforms. It's interesting because with COVID, how um, they were shutting down the meat factories or whatever, but then Trump um, instated it was an order from the Defense Production Act. Okay, so it's based on an interpretation of law. So yeah, he he developed. He said that meat packing is critical infrastructure, and therefore they couldn't shut down even if they wanted to because it's it's critical. And so that you know, and that's and that was interpreted like the the meat companies wanted to. I heard a podcast of this where like, and I'm not I'm no fan of them, but they were obviously they didn't want everyone to die of COVID. Like they were already doing stuff to try to mitigate risk. But at the end of the day. There were, there were internal fights and then obviously with the external pressure where some people wanted them to close and then Trump's saying, no, you have to be open. That must have been crazy. I mean, there's good reporting on that. I guess the idea with Selag is it would be safer, arguably, than meat, yeah, than like slaughtering animals, which is just... Yeah, because you have to be in a... Like in, in slaughtering animals, it, uh, it should be as sterile as possible. But if you're in a lab, that really has to be as sterile as possible in looking at meat compared to vegetarianism where the U S is like, no, we have to produce meat. And even if there's a pandemic, we have to produce this meat. And that also probably has a lot to do. I mean, when we're talking about politics is the, the meat companies, which are lobbyists for Trump and for the administration, all these other things that will, will literally not let us shut down even when there's a pandemic. So what do we take away from all of this? Garrett has a pretty good summary. The most ardent opponents, I think, would benefit from like a good biology class just to show us like what's happening, what are the risks, what are not the risks, right? And what might you read on naturalnews.com that's not particularly helpful. And then the folks on the most ardent, this is going to solve every problem ever, need to take a good like history and sociology of science course to show that these technologies in and of themselves are not going to fix all of our issues um, and that we need social and political and economic strategies to go along with these technologies to figure out how do they fit into our society and our culture and our cities and our rural areas of the future. Thanks so much to our amazing guests, Mira Zazenhaus and Garrett Broad. The music you heard in this episode was by Anya Yermakova. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our fresher content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. 
Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.